Hi, y'all. Welcome to the Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. My name is Sarah Shackett. I'm a writer over at IndieWire, and today I am excited to bring you this conversation with director John Carney. Uh, His latest film, Slash Love Letter to the City of Dublin, Flora and Son, is out now. And honestly, I'm just going to level with y'all that Carney's first film, Once, hit me at an impressionable age, and I have wanted to talk to him forever about how he thinks about musicals, how he visualizes the process of creativity in a way that is so uniquely his own, how he approaches the songs in his films. And and John was incredibly generous with his time and willing to get into everything, not just about Flora and Son, but about the history of the musical as a genre, places where he finds inspiration, what he thinks of Taylor Swift, and much, much more. It's a very uh, wide-ranging talk, so I really hope that you enjoy this conversation with John Carney. John, I would love to start off by asking you a selfish question. Why is Guys and Dolls the greatest musical of all time? And what do you take from it in your films? Well, did I say that? Because it's it's a race between Singing in the Rain and Guys and Dolls for me. Fair enough. Because those movies are so incredibly deft at seeming like they are flamboyant, fun, you know, frothy musicals, but actually have are as good as any drama or comedy ever made. You know, all the wit and and uh, smart dialogue, great character development, funny plotting. You know, like Singing in the Rain is is a movie about like it's like it's as good as any of the best Woody Allen movies from the you know eighties. It's like as a as a piece of satire about Hollywood. It's as good as uh, Sunset Boulevard. It's a sophisticated satire of Hollywood, but yet it loves and is very affectionate about the world of Hollywood. Yeah, and yet, and it seems in one way like a frivolous musical, but it so isn't. And Guys and Dolls, similarly, is is one of the greatest love stories. It's a it's a it's also a complex love story between two couples, you know, two sets of couples. Yeah. Um, and I mean, the, like Guys and Dolls songs are 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 so standout. I mean, they're as sophisticated as as any Gershwin song or Rodgers and Hart song. They are stunning. And I mean, I think every song in that film was was a hit record. I think there was a twelve number one hits from that from that uh, score from that play. Um, they they're just like the the Exorcist of Hollywood of of horror movies or the you know the the American Werewolf in London of horror movies. They're perfect. Is that sort of the um the ability to sort of combine drama, humor, and music, something that you sort of try and and replicate? Uh, or like, are you, I'm curious sort of like what gives you energy about that, that level of sophistication? It's not that, it's not that. It's more that all filmmaking should um, conceal the artifice of it and the, mm manufactured nature of it and it should never fall into any genre the second you make a movie that can be classified in 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 a genre it's not original Mm. and it's just a it's a it's purely entertainment i'm not saying that you can't have genre genre movies that are entertaining but they're they're not long lasting for me 
Mm-hmm. So, for example, I mean, I think horror is a terrible genre of movie. Ma- of movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it doesn't particularly appeal to me. But yet, there's four or five of the best movies ever made with horror films, technically. But they're just not horror films, is the thing. Mm-hmm. And only kind of an idiot would think that Rosemary's Baby is really a horror film. It might be categorized or cataloged as a, as a horror for, for ease of reference or whatever. But it's a family drama with humor and the, the terror of being alive. And yeah. it's, it, it, you know, it's black and funny and dark and it's about nesting and it's about having babies. It's just so fantastic. But it, it looks like a horror movie. And I think all films should strive to defy the category in which they, you know, journalists or fans would, would, would have them right. reside in. In defiance of all of the internet's lists of best X genre, absolutely. <laughs> it's it's part- just so dumb because it's 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 so dumb because it it limits movies and it makes you it make it, it, it you wouldn't put books in a genre really apart mm-hmm. from as a very broad right very very broad thing but like you know um it's very it's very limiting each film should be its own thing I think. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things, one of the the challenges that I I love that that Florenson sets for itself that really feels like sort of the next tier of difficulty off of uh, the other films that you've made is sort of this construction of not necessarily bad, but like a mediocre song that gets better. And so I'd love to sort of ask you about uh, that and and collaborating with uh, the actors and Gary Clark on creating like a, a song that needs some love. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. I mean, the days of just musicals being full of tons of the best songs ever, I think, are kind of past us. Mm -hmm. And um, people, I think, want more when they go to see a film that's about music or musically themed. It's not just about hearing an album of great trap songs. I'm sure you can have that, you know, but that's not where I'm at in my career. I would like to continue doing, sort of specializing in the thing that called me to do, which is make these musically themed pictures. I'd like to continue doing that, but I'd like to develop the stories and the use of music Mm. so that it isn't anymore just about atmosphere and fun or the best song ever, but it's about, you know, the music can be the worst thing for some people in life. Music can be a saving thing. Music can be a disaster for relationships music can be in a wake when somebody dies it can be at a wedding it can be a lullaby to get your kid to go to sleep it doesn't just have to be judy garland or uh winning grammys or you know the star is born stuff you know i'd love to keep exploring and seeing what the limits of that are and really get into because i love musicians and i am a musician and i lived in that world for a while and it's it's infinitely pretty bands and musicians and are, are kind of fascinating. Like if you take Tar, for example, just the fact that she's a conductor just sort of changes everything in that movie. You know, you, she could have probably done numerous things. It's the fact that she's a conductor and it just, the second you put a guitar on somebody's back or a baton in their briefcase or a piano, you know, the second you give them that prop, the, the story, you, you, you just have a strange, weird sympathy with the characters. Hmm. because because as musicians or singers or conductors there's there's some part of them that makes them weird and different (laughs) yeah and sort of not only feeling things but like having 
the desire, the need to perform it for others. And so like it creates a sense of connection that I think is really cool. That's that's very well said about. Um, yeah, the, the, that Tara would be very, very different if she was anything else. But yeah, I, I'm curious about um, sort of the, the songwriting process for Welcome to L.A. So, yeah, that, that was a, a case in point. That was like, how do we make people feel that this scene at the end and this collaboration is both uplifting and fun, mm -hmm. but is also highly, highly plausible. And if we ever felt like we broke that connection with the audience, we felt we were screwed. And we felt that the audience would go, sorry, you, you, you tricked us. You know, if the song was, you know, because we could have gone and gotten seven of the best songwriters to write song the way songs are created now with like five people or 10 people all chipping in the best. And they're all really good songwriters. But like, of course, you're going to get earworm if you do that. But right. it wouldn't have worked for this. It had This has to feel, you know, flawed and uh, very much from that character with her limitations and with her yeah, eight chords that she probably knows and Jeff, who's not a great successful singer-songwriter and a kid on on, on garage band or you know, with yeah. these loops who it was just beginning. So it has to come from there without coming from there, if you know what I mean. So me and Gary were the perfect sort of collaborators for for that, because obviously he's a professional musician for 30 years. I'm a hobbyist, but I love it. So it was kind of perfect. So I could kind of give him things that were very naive because it comes kind of naturally to me. And he mm -hmm. sort of could rephrase them in a catchier way and make the experience pleasant because it has to be pleasant because it's not a documentary. You know, we're not making a, a, a memoir about a terrible band or something. Right. Which would be excruciating. I mean, there's the great thing that Spinal Tap did was say, we're going to make a comedy about a ridiculous band. But we want full songs in the movie. Therefore, the songs have to actually be good. Even though, because if you really tell the story about Spinal Tap, the songs would be just truly awful, like unlistenable yeah. to. But they they made a very smart decision, which was like, uh, that's we're not making a documentary. We're, it ha the songs have to be as good as in any musical, and they are. Spinal Tap songs are great. I would love to ask you about uh, the Zoom of it all. Um, and whether that sort of the challenge of creating that connection uh, between Flora and Jack um, over the Internet was something that arose out of uh, lockdown. Or have you kind of always been fascinated with like collaboration at a distance of which there is a lot of in this movie? Um, I'm yeah curious about the the, me the mechanic of um, their relationship. So, no, I had written 20 pages of the idea, you know, in, in sort of fits and starts. Actually, probably when I was making Modern Love in America, I was scribbling away at this character. And then I got to the stage where she opened her laptop and she met this singer, this guitar player who was going to mm. teach her. And they started talking. I wrote, I actually just wrote the introduction bit where he pitches how he's going to teach, you know. And yeah. I think I stopped then and I was like, nobody is going to, I've kind of cornered myself here. Because I didn't want her to have to go in and knock on a door with guitar teacher written over and open the right. door to the guitar. Because nobody does that anymore, you know, unless you're a very serious musician. So the first place she's going to go is the internet. So in order to make it modern and plausible, she she has to go there. But then it was like, okay, people are not going to watch two people talking on on computer screens. It's not why they go to the cinema. And, and at this stage, probably 1% of people in the world were using Skype right. on a regular basis for work. Actually, it was just a 
I mean, do you remember Skype was kind of just this weird thing that you did with people if you were away for a, a moment or something or FaceTime? Right, or, yeah, if you're um, traveling in a different country or something. Yeah, you'd yeah. FaceTime somebody or you'd Skype. Yeah, if you had a girlfriend or a boyfriend or something, you'd Skype them and it would be weird. And you'd be like, you'd text and say, I wish we hadn't done that. It was sad <laughs> seeing you or whatever. It was actually just a very strange experience, if I remember correctly. And then Zoom came along in the pandemic and three months into that, we were all conditioned completely. Yeah. Like it was like part of our brain had changed. And then I reread the script and was like, this totally works now. In fact, Zoom is in fact the, the thing that gives me permission to go ahead and write this now because everybody immediately knows what that means. In fact, it's a boom for a movie to have something that's that broad. Yeah. It's actually, it really helps. It actually, the very thing, I mean, it's amazing. The very thing that I was going, nah, I'm going to pause this writing and put it away for four months. That very thing that blocked me became the very thing that totally made this movie universal. Even though it's actually a very quirky, small, tiny movie. Yeah. Suddenly, it's not. That, and that is amazing. I also love it. It, it sort of because, uh, you know, we are, as you said, like conditioned and we sort of like channel our attention into this computer screen. But the rest of the world is still happening outside. It gives you like some wonderful opportunities in this film uh, to sort of play with that, with Jack appearing on the roof or with Flora's friend, like listening in from the side and we cut to see that she's been there the entire time and stuff. I'm curious how you think about, um, yeah, like blocking and editing and sort of the way that that gives this movie like energy and comedy. I mean, it's very, very um, specific, very small things. Mm -hmm. You're in a room with people. That's kind of it. it. It very rarely goes beyond that sort of spectrum. So those those little things are very specific. I mean, it really is a kitchen sink drama. I mean, I wanted to keep it fully in the flat, really, and see if I could. It's kind of more as an experiment, really, to begin with. Mm -hmm. And to see, could I have these people like plausibly fall in love and or or even fall in fall in like or romance with each other or some even yeah. fantasy? That was kind of like a fun challenge for me as a writer. And so that the elements of that are speak for themselves and are very simple. You don't have to do that much, you know, I find with them. Um, it's like murder on the Orient Express. It's like the fact that it's all on a train could be limiting with one director. So, with, for example, Kenneth Branagh, it's totally limiting and he doesn't know how to how to do it. But suddenly, somebody like Sidney Lumet or some, is all over that and is like, I love that because he's done 12 Angry Men and he knows how to turn the thing into a fun challenge yeah as opposed to let it be the thing that holds you back this is a i apologize this is a little bit of a broad question but i'm curious are you someone who tends to like works more stuff out in prep or in post like kind of where uh for you does a lot of like the problem solving of of fitting the movie together happen I mean, I think like every director would say there, there's, there's three big stages, you know, or particularly if you're a writer director, you know, there's the, there's the stage where you're on your own in, in, in your flat or your house and you're just for three months, you just don't see anybody and you're just in this bubble of final draft and research and moving scenes around and you, you create this thing and you start reading it to people, people start reading and coming back with notes and you, God knows what it is. It's just a, 
idea it's like a blueprint for a building it's just drawing mm. of a building <laughs> like it's useless you know it's like you can't live in it maybe somebody can interpret this maybe as a right. director with actors i can maybe look at this blueprint and make something of this so then you go out onto a floor with actors and you give it your best shot and you try to remember where you were at and what you were doing when you were writing this and try and reinterpret that for actors. But I mean, I'm very open. So I don't go in saying this is how I, this is exactly what I was thinking, but I want you to do this. And I think mm. very gifted directors often can do that and are extremely precise and aren't aren't waiting for magic to happen on set. They're 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 creating it. I wait and I indulge. I, I kind of I, I, I feel like I could never get what was in my mind exactly right anyway. So mm -hmm. I might as well give up on it and just start a new process of this this thing of making films. And just the script is just a thing that we have as a kind of a guide. But now we're on set, we're doing something new. And then you you finish that process and you don't know what you've got. And, you, you, you know, you know, you've likely got maybe 30 percent really good stuff. But the 70 percent, the rest of it, you're not sure of. Like, I, you know, you know, I, I did definitely get some great days, but probably about a third. And then, you know, in the edit, you 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 go down the the the, the horrific, horrible tunnel of this act, seeing it for the first time, where it's unsalvageable, and you know, you really are screwed. And and then day by day by day, you try different things, and that's just a whole other process. Like it's 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 really is a bizarre journey that brings you to this really simple place. And that's why when I read reviews of my films or or anybody's films, um, when people talk about it being simple or too simple hmm. it, it bugs me because nothing about filmmaking is is actually simple you know it's all really complex and messy and um and it does sometimes you can get you can oversimplify it in the edit uh, but that and that's part of the mistake but that the, the whole construct of a film is enormously co complex and shouldn't work you know it is like a jigsaw in the dark or something it's like that should not yeah. come together but sometimes it does. But it, yeah. it's it, it's uh, it's against the odds for it to come together. I think. Yeah, there is, and and that's why it feels like magic when it does. Um, Precisely. Yeah. Yeah. And then when you look at old movies, you know, you, you just can't account for how good they are. When you watch a really like if you watch Casablanca or something, and there are moving giant cameras around, and everything was you know took fifty lights to light. And the sound was really hard to get and the technology was ancient and these actors were doing 12 of these movies a year or whatever, you know, but you just can't account for when, 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 when those movies were good in the, in the 30s, 40s and 50s, particularly those three before small cameras and before going out into the streets or whatever, it's beyond like reason how these emigres from Europe came to Hollywood, were processed through the meat machine of Hollywood, but brilliantly came out on the other side with these pieces of high art. It's really, it's very hard to account for how, how good they are. And just sort of the number of reps that they all did is astonishing. It's yeah, yeah hard to wrap your mind around. In terms of your process and sort of creating sort of the space for where magic can happen if you wait for it, I'm curious, does that mean like shooting a lot of coverage does that mean just sort of giving uh the actors kind of space to experiment and doing really long takes like what what form does that take so not not actually shooting a lot i don't that's never worked for me mm -hmm. um in fact i shoot less now than i than i did when i was starting off 
uh, because I kind of know that the only the only thing that you have that's like a church, you know, when you're making movies is when you press the red button. There's a moment of time that it's like holy mm. and s- sacred or whatever. There's a magic happening, and you 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 should use that very um, sparsely and carefully. You know, I I find uh, I just don't want to be in the edit suite with thousands and thousands of options. I think that yeah, I don't know. I think you should sort of know on set that you've the least you've done is like between those goalposts of stop and start you you, you've really focused everybody's attention on that 45 second scene or whatever you know everybody on set has been working for these rare moments during the day where everything has been on and focused Mm -hmm. and and it should it normally takes me a long time to get there and then and then you roll and and uh, whatever happens, happens, you know, but 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 it ought to be pretty good when that camera is running and the, everything's been set up to focus on these these few moments of the day where where hopefully everybody is at their best. Yeah. For the Zoom stuff, was that did you actually like set up a computer in front of Eve and <laughs> and, and Joseph and have them in separate spaces? Um, was that something that was kind of processed later? I'm, I'm curious about uh yeah, how that actually came together. No, it was two sets next to each other and soundproofed. Cool. Cam- cameras leading them in so that did for the actors, it appeared like they were actually on Zoom, you know, each each on their screen. But mm-hmm. to our crew, everything was syncing and working and being filmed in a way that we could. So Joe's voice was coming through Eve's computer, but it was also being recorded over there so I could use it, so I could use that and bring it down to the, you know. So yeah, like all films, to get a sense of reality, you you have to create uh, unreality. As a New Yorker, I appreciate Begin Again and Modern Love, but it really feels like with the films you've made, you're showing new pieces of Dublin every time. Um, and I'm I, I would love to hear you talk about like sort of what what parts of Dublin you wanted to bring to this film. I mean, I just cycle around a lot in Dublin. I'll go for cycles, and I know the city quite well. Mm. And I get through it very quickly. You know, I can jump from an extreme area to to a calm area. I can go from the inner city, south side to the north side. If you're on a bike, you sort of look at Dublin holistically. Mm. And you, you kind of hope to see it in a way that sort of James Joyce saw it, which was like an overhead sort of view, a non-judgmental, hu- very human sort of place. Uh, where like class and politics come into everything, but they don't, you're, you're never limited by those things. You, you know, you're, you're, you're never, you're never held back by the fact that somebody, you know, is, is posh or is working class or is from this area or that area, you know, but you're, I'm interested in finding characters in their environments and trying to, um, you know, tell my funny stories through them or with them, you know, but I'm not that interested in being that particular about Dublin in terms okay. of areas. You know, I, I like to look at us all as Dubliners and there is a sense in Dublin because it's a small place that we're kind of in it together a little bit, even though that's a bit of a cliche. And that is becoming problematic in Dublin, like everywhere else in the world at the moment with, you know, inequality and those 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 kind of uh, extremes being more, you know, felt too much. Yeah. But 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 in theory, at least, or certainly when I was growing up, 
there were less of those divides and you felt like a Dubliner. And if you met a Dubliner away, you were a Dubliner. And that was the end of it. Didn't really matter what side of the Liffey you were from. At right. least that's how I, I looked at it. No, and I think there's there's something beautiful in, in sort of the last shot of Flora and Son where it just sort of rises up so that you can see Dublin. Um, and that these voices are are a part of Dublin. Um, and so, like, the fact that you cycle around makes a ton of sense. There's This is a movie that has a very strong sense of place. Um, and that's awesome. Another thing I, w- I wanted to ask you about that is uh, certainly very prominent in, in this film and, and also features uh, in a lot of your work is, is it seems like a sort of teenage character who is dealing with, like, music and love for the first time. Is, is something that you return to again and again. And I, I'm curious, like, what about those characters speak to you um, and sort of what sort of fun, dramatic opportunities do you find with them? That's interesting. I mean, I, 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 don't, I, I, hmm. I don't think I'm that interested in, like, the first kind of dabblings of romance more than the, 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 the idea of... Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, music is... Almost like, you know, when you when you don't know music and somebody is introducing you to all of these new songs and all these mm-hmm. forms of m- music uh, and genres and stuff, it's kind of like the world is just opening every day. Uh-huh. It's like it's reopening again. It really is amazing. The sense of wonder at, at finding all of, you know, this music that's been created before you were born or, you know, in different countries or continents. Um, and that's very romantic. Yeah. And... I think that, uh, I mean, it's it's interesting that most of the popular music, I'd say, I mean, you could you could run a, a, an algorithm for this very quickly, but I'd say a vast percentage of rock, you know, mo- of modern music, of yeah. popular music, is is trying to capture the sense of first love and the power of of, or not just first love, but like the most intense love that you know can't be repeated. Right. And that needs this three minute song to kind of catch it because you know it's going to go. So many songs are charged with that. And I don't think it's just because it's for a young audience, you know, and young people are very, are very sexed up and very, you know, very, very um, open to all things romantic and sexual. You know, when you're 15, yeah. 16, 17, you know, there's. I don't think it's just because they were like, I watched MTV a lot when I was a kid and it was extremely romantic and and like sexually charged and very, very exciting and, but kind of pure. And it was a genre, it was weird. It was like, they're writing these songs for me, like these 80s ballads that were not called 80s ballads then because it was the 80s, but you know, these big triumphant love songs and these great tragic pop songs and, I'm kind of waffling there, but you know what I mean? It's all kind of do, tied yeah. in to, for me, to because I don't really listen to pop music anymore. And I was thinking the other day, you know, like, what, what is it like to, to, for like Taylor Swift to be, you know, as opposed to like, it was Michael Jackson for me yeah, when I was that age. And I look at Taylor Swift and I'm like, what would it be like if you had somebody like writing about all of those different conditions that she writes about? You know, she doesn't just say, I love you, I love you, or I feel really good. I right. like looking at your face, which is what most pop music in my time was reinforcing. You're beautiful. This is amazing. I'll never love anybody like you or or you broke my heart and I'm incredibly sad. Yeah. It was just that in various different reiterations 
you know, and it struck me the other yeah, day, yeah. like, I, I wonder what it's like to be 14 or 15 and have Taylor Swift sing all these different ideas about your femininity and your youth and your socials and your situation and your it's I, I've, I think I've kind of written it off a little bit and like I can't imagine being 15 and having that much the, the lyrics that were that kind of complex and yeah uh, no I mean I, I that makes a ton of sense and you know it's it's fascinating for Max in this film like a lot of his struggle is to actually articulate a complex idea uh which he figures out how to do through music um but there is sort of that, uh, it, you know, parallel journey that he and Flora are on of just like they need some other medium in order to be able to say the things that they they feel but can't articulate. Um, and so it's a very interesting to pair their musical styles of like she sort of finds God through a Joni Mitchell song and he is like all techno garage band samples uh i'm curious like was that kind of an intuitive choice for you was that uh sort of the different styles something you arrived at yeah the the characters and their world told me what it was eventually like i experimented a lot with it and i didn't settle on a, a, a the style of music for quite a while hmm. and i had finished the script and i had to backtrack and think okay what is this movie going to sound like now you know that's very very important i've kind of written ideas down on the page but I haven't actually landed on the thing I had and I have various I was actually listening to my garage band the other day and going through old files and going oh god remember when she was like much more country huh. it was a period that she wrote much more country style thing and there was a period where Max was like doing drill hmm. and it was all very sort of like Manchester angry young man sort of like and I think it was I had a funny joke at one stage that he would like sing in a Mancunian accent for no reason because it's all like you you know disrespecting me on my corner I'm gonna cut you in a horn you know yeah and and that kind of angry drill thing and then I realized I hate that and uh, and I'm not a particularly a massive country fan so I ditched that and I have seen I you know and then I thought okay she's definitely gonna be acoustic but what if the mm -hmm. Joni Mitchell thing rubs off on her a bit or the mm. Tom Waits, or the, and you know, just a little bit, or that Jeff brings that to the table, and she, right. you know, she has a nice, funny way of expressing herself, and then Max brings like an electronica thing, which you could mix interestingly with the acoustic guitar, to make a new, or not new, but like, like I was listening to the, a lot of the Blue Nile and a lot of a lot of songs that I like in the eighties and nineties seemed like they were written on acoustic, but then the acoustic was stripped back. And they were played and performed on synth. Mm -hmm. Like if you look at ABC or the Human League, they're all very, very good songs that they, those guys wrote. But they sound simple because they're done on synthesizers often, or they you could write them off as just kind of 80s pop. But actually, if you deconstruct them, you realize that there's a very clever song underneath. It was probably written on a piano or a guitar. But because, again, because of the very first thing we talked about, about covering the tracks to your cave, they don't want to be seen to be like Dylan or the Beatles because it was the right. 80s and they wanted to be synthy and, and, and funky and whatever. Yeah. So Joy Division and all of those bands didn't want to sound acoustic-y, but the songs are actually very good songs. It's what a lot of retro bands or like nostalgic bands now that are obsessed with the 80s forget. 
which is like, oh, we ticked all the boxes. And you're like, yeah, but your song's shit, dude. The last thing I would love to ask you about is I, in, in every single one of your films, and it, it's it's different every time, uh, you sort of find a way to sort of visualize like the very internal and emotional experience of listening to a really good song, um, to a powerful piece of music. And so I would love to ask you kind of how do you how do you think about visuals for like an experience that is inherently internal to someone? I, I don't think about it too much. I think I've probably just gotten got quite good at it because I, I like music a lot. Mm-hmm. And I, my job as a filmmaker, I like I don't sit down to do it, but I think I probably often experience music in a, in a different way or something like that. Like we dance around cool. the house with our kids and do silly things to music, but it's very natural. And I think probably that's, that's mesh my job as a scriptwriter, or, you know, I've managed to kind of put those two things together, but it's second nature to me. You know, I don't think it's probably why I would have never made a very good video maker for bands because it's a different way of thinking, you know, you're just doing three minutes and then you're gone. Right. So when people ask me to make videos for their bands, I just say no, because I'm like, I wouldn't be good. You, you have to get a different type of mind who can get three minutes across. I, I'm thinking in terms of how that connects to something earlier. and yeah. John, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I really appreciate it. Um, My pleasure. Such thoughtful answers. Thank you. 